your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. Now, it's great to have uh, in the studio Bill Whelan, a Limerick man. Um, very famous for river dance, but many other things too uh, during a long and distinguished career in music. And uh, Bill is uh, back in his hometown. He will be signing copies of his memoir, which um, I have in my hand, uh, Bill Whelan, The Road to River Dance. And uh, that's in O'Mahony's tomorrow at two o'clock on O'Connell Street in Limerick. And you're most welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Tell me about the photograph on the front of the book. Very good, actually. Uh, The photograph is one my father... My father used to take and develop photographs. And uh, that obviously was not taken by him because he's in it. But that's myself and himself on his uh, Triumph Aerial 650 motorbike. And uh, we didn't have a car, but he had a motorbike. And um, it's a bit of a history to that because he... He took it up to, see, his brother was a monk in Ross Grey and he used to go up to see him on the motorbike. And uh, um, he didn't come off the motorbike one day uh, and ended up in hospital. And when he got out of hospital, he went home and said to my mother, Irene, um, give us a look at the bike, where is it? And she put it, she handed him a cheque. And she said, there's the bike for you now. That's the interview in bikes. <laughs> but not before he got a chance to take that photograph um, uh, of myself and himself yeah. on the bike. What age are you there? God, I don't know. I'm supposed to be about three or four, maybe at the most. Yeah. And yeah. tell me, do you recognise you now in your in dad? dad? No, but I recognise my son in my dad. Do you? Yeah, my, my, my eldest son, David, is very, very like his namesake, my gra- his grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Uh, no, I mean, over the years, I, I would have chatted to the likes of Mickey Mack, for example. Oh, I mean, yeah. Our yeah. own Declan Cobus, who works with us here, and, and they'd all remember you. Um, uh, does Limerick feature prominently, particularly in the early passages of the book? Well, in fact, the whole book is about, the, really, the, the as it says on the, on the tin, it's the road to Riverdance. So Riverdance is about the last 25 pages of it. The rest of it is all about early life in Limerick. Growing up here, bands, music here, and my own experiences of music education here, etc. And then on through my, when I went to Dublin, I studied in UCD for a while. So there's that, and then there's a whole section about all my my work in studios and in RTE and everything in Dublin. On the way to being ultimately the composer of Riverdance. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really the story of the journey. It stops on the first night of Riverdance in London when we made the full two-hour show and uh, we opened in London uh, for a long two-year run in London. And uh, so it stops at that first night. But there's a lot of detail about how Riverdance came together and that. But uh, mostly it's about my early life. So there's for Limerick people... There's a fair bit to read. Well, <laughs> you're on here on, on the local radio station <laughs> yeah. in Limerick, so you can be sure people will be very interested in things like, you know, where you went to school, your yeah. formative influences, the kind of people you were knocking around with in Limerick. Exactly, exactly. And where I grew up, like I grew up in Barrington Street, um, which uh, just beside the old, the Crescent, and I went to school in the Crescent when it w- was there, South and Duradore now, as you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's about the people around me in those days, you know, and, um, you know, we had a shop in William Street. 
So I worked in the shop and it was all about the experience of meeting people coming in and out of the shop. And so there's a lot of stuff about uh, a limerick that is visible still, but not quite, you know. Running a shop it can be all-consuming for a family when it's a family business. Oh, yeah, yeah totally. I mean, we, we lived in Barrington Street. There were only three of us, my father, my mother, myself. I didn't have brothers or sisters. And they ran the shop. And the shop was the worst kind of shop if you wanted a social life. It was a newspaper shop. So we opened every day of the year, 364 days of the year. We closed on Christmas Day. That was it. And we opened on Stephen's Day for the racing papers. Uh, so basically it was a, uh, and, and we opened at 7.30 in the morning or earlier sometimes and then it, the shop ran till about half nine or ten at night. And, and just located for uh, listeners, I mean, what era was this that you were growing up in Limerick? Well, it was an era when, I mean, I think for many ways uh, a lot of life was in the inner city. So, um, you know, around the streets where I grew up, Behind us, behind I, I grew up, on, as I said, on Barrington Street. Behind us was Little Barrington Street. And Little Barrington Street was a, a row of, of uh, small cottages, two-story cottages. And, for instance, the McCourts lived there. Malachy and Frank McCourt lived there with their uncle, uh, Ab Sheehan, who would be well-known to many Limerick people. And um, so I met Malachy, actually. I went to see, I was in New York about three weeks ago. And I visited Malachy, who's, you know, he's he's over 90 now. What a character. Oh, absolutely. And we started to name off the families in the stri- in the, in Little Barrington Street. And I knew them and he knew them. And we, we made an argument about whether the Mars were beside the Moors or the Moors were beside the Pattersons and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but it was great to go back over the, st- the streets and then the, the, on the main street he worked uh, Malachi had a job working for the Jesuits as a houseboy for the Jesuits church and we went back over people that we knew there and even though he'd left Limerick you know the McCourts had left Limerick except for Abshian who was Angela's brother uh, except for Abshian um, you know the, the McCourts had gone on and gone to America so I didn't really know them and it wasn't until 1992 when I went out to work on a production of Leon Uris's Trinity in New York that suddenly this big booming voice appeared from among the actors and there was Malachi McCourt. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, fantastic. And, and then we, we just renewed our, you know, well, it's not renewed, but we, we renewed our memories, although our early um, experiences in Limerick would have been quite different. But it was great to see him, yeah. How did music enter your life, Bill Whelan? Continuously, is the answer to that. I mean, my f- both parents were m- very musical. Uh, my mother played piano very well. She was she could have had a career as a pianist, I think, you know. But uh, she was a family of ten and she was the eldest girl. So she ended up looking after them all as they moved on. And uh, my dad was a, more of a, a natural musician. He played harmonica uh, and he really indulged my fascination with music. So he took me to hear a lot of music. And uh, ultimately... He and I and a few lads built a small recording studio at the top of, in the attic of our house. 
and put in a machine called a Vortexian, which was a <laughs> was a reel-to-reel tape tape machine, which was like the absolute zenith of technology as far as we were concerned in the, in those days. And I recorded a lot of stuff there. I recorded demos of my songs, and uh, we recorded a band from Killaloo called the Shannon Folk Four, and all kinds of things. But it was up at the top of the house. The neighbours heard a lot of music. Was it an eclectic mix? I mean, the popular music of the time, but other influences as well. Oh, totally, absolutely. I mean, he would have listened to every. He would have brought in everything from Thelonious Monk. Uh, all the jazz players, Johnny Hodges, uh, well, Glenn Miller, the big bands. And then through that onwards into opera. It's a big opera. They Both of them loved opera, so there's a lot of opera in the house. Renata Tabaldi, Joshua Bjorling, all of these opera stars at the time. And, uh, and then I, of course, d- uh, took a big interest in the emerging music of the 60s. So, but my father was the man who brought in Bill Haley into the house and, you know, all of that, Emil Ford, all those kind of influences, they were all brought in by him. Right. And, and okay, in the era, I mean, you, you mentioned some of the very well-known people there already, um, but, uh, for example, this being the weekend of the Richard Harris Film yeah. Festival, you, yeah. d- did you have dealings with Richard? Oh, I certainly did, yeah. When I was uh, going back to the Vortexian, um, you know, we used to make uh, the demos in the top of the house and uh, I sent um, a demo of a couple of my pieces to a guy who grew, well, who grew up in San Diego, but he lived in Limerick, Mike O'Mahony. The, Mike o- the O'Mahony's moved back from San Diego and Mike then lived here and then he ultimately moved to London and he got a job in London working for CBS Records. And I used to send him my songs in the hope that he'd, you know, get them around for me. And indeed he did. And one of the places he brought them was into Richard Harris's office. And he played him this thing. And uh, Mike was had a very kind of typical, he was a big tall guy, very kind of uh, American in style. And uh, he played the, uh, put on the, uh, gave the tapes to Dermot Harris and said, you know, have a listen to those and call me, you know. And after about three days, he heard nothing. So he rang up Dermot Harris and uh, Dermot said, yeah. And he said, um, those tapes that I sent over, yeah, I'm, I'm coming over to pick them up. He said, we have a big offer from RCA, uh, which might have been a slight exaggeration from no offer from RCA. But anyway, he went over and by the time he got there, Dermot Harris had actually played the track. Uh, this this instrumental piece I wrote, which was called Denise, and he played it to uh, Richard, and Richard wanted it immediately as the theme music for his new film. So at 19 years of age, we ended up going to London, myself and Niall Connery, who used to write songs with me, going to London, and the, and the music ended up um, on, the, on the score of a film called Bloomfield, which Harris ultimately brought to Limerick for its premiere performance at the Savoy. Isn't so that amazing? amazing, yeah. So at nineteen, at nineteen, Joe, I thought that's it. Yes, I made. I made. <laughs> it's all over now. <laughs> well, there's a few more pages to the book, so no. I'd suggest there were a lot more happened in the meantime. But listen, stay with us. I, I'm sure listeners are loving this as much as I am this morning. Bill Whelan's memoir is The Road to River Dance. He'll be signing it at two o'clock tomorrow in the hometown at O'Mahony's on O'Connell Street. We'll take a short break and we'll chat a bit more with Bill after that. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. 
And we're having a, a fascinating chat here anyway uh, during the break. This is Bill Whelan's memoir, The Road to River Dance. And uh, Bill has just opened this book to page 59 and there's a photograph uh, of hi- him in it, but also a man called Billy Sinden who <laughs> taught me French in school. <laughs> so it just shows you, doesn't it, the connections? Yeah, it's amazing. That is that is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and and also I, I mentioned that uh, uh, Michael McNamara, the, the the broadcaster, of course, um, yeah. he told us a, a fascinating story, and, and you, you were recalling it, and it had to do with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. That's right. Yeah, myself and my my pal, John Cosgrove, who's unfortunately no longer with us, uh, John and I were members of a thing called the Heenor Record Centre in in Middlesex. And we used to get a a, a programme every every week, print a thing of what records were going to be released in the future. And we would order them. And we ordered, um, we saw the Sgt. Peppers coming up. So we ordered Sgt. Peppers Lonely Hearts Club Band. And we got it about maybe it was about 10 days before it was released in Ireland and can you imagine what that was like <clears throat> and we would we, we nearly had to have security walking around with us <laughs> with well, well Mickey Max says he was one of the people who was there <laughs> wanting to hear that yeah oh it was and we'd take it up to Billy Sinden's house so you just mentioned and uh, we would uh, Billy Sinden had a fantastic uh, record system up at the house his dad had a great stereo system and we would put on Sgt Pepper and we would sit there every night, a member of a summer, every night, and just listening. And then we'd be sort of stopping it and trying to wind it backwards on the on the turntable to see if there were any hidden messages from the Beatles, <laughs> you know, which was all going on at that time. <laughs> oh, it was incredible. But that was so influential, you know, for all of us. Yeah. And then I, I was in a band with Billy. Billy played great guitar. I uh, was a big fan of uh, Chet Atkins and... Uh, and uh, Mar- Hank Marvin um, in the shadows and uh, he played guitar and we had a band called <coughs> The Swinging Four and, and The Swinging Four was uh, D- Billy on, on guitar uh, Des Dini on piano um, Jed Spencer as vocals and uh, myself on the drums and we played one major concert, and then I think we broke up. You broke up. <laughs> Artistic differences. <laughs> the swinging four swang out the door, yeah. So to tell us, well, you mentioned <clears throat> that early success at 19 and the help from Richard Harris, which is a lovely story. So, you know, there's so much in the book, we're not going to even go near scratching the surface of it. But talk to me about progression then and presumably moving from Limerick <clears throat> and all of that. Bill. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I went, to, I went to Dublin to do law, um, you know, my parents, uh, despite the fact that they drenched me with music from a very early age, when it came to a career, uh, I said, well, what about music? And they looked at me as if I'd lost my reason and said, not at all, you absolutely must go and do, you know, something that you might earn some money at. And uh, so I ended up checking into uh, UCD in 1968 for a law degree. And I spent the next four years in, in UCD and the King's Inns uh, doing a rather lengthy uh, course in law. There were a few summer repeat exams uh, because I was involved in music all the time. When I got to Dublin, I just immediately gravitated towards where I could find music and find my way in. And it was difficult. You know, you didn't know... Like, music is one of those careers. There is no map, you know, so it's hard to kind of find your way. And I wanted to be... 
you know, I didn't want to be a sort of singer up front. I wanted to be, I admired all the producers and the arrangers and the people like who you wouldn't necessarily hear about, but who were in the background. And then composition, I obviously wrote songs from a very early days. So I was trying to find a way for, for positioning my songs or myself as, a, as an arranger. So it was it was difficult while I was in college. Eventually, after a sort of slow advance towards a degree, I, I did, I finished my law degree and then I went straight into music mm. and I began to play in theatre shows, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Jesus Christ Superstar, toured with various artists, then began to do studio work. So the book is all about that. It's about that period of my life between, let's say, from the ages of the age of twenty, mid twenties, until you know, until I was forty-five when I wrote Riverdance. Yeah, uh, the Seville Suite. Yeah, I I, I love that. And to yeah. be honest, I prefer it to Riverdance personally, but that's just a personal taste thing. Yeah. I just think that's amazing work. Well, it was funny. Um, the Seville Suite. You know, sometimes towards the late eighties, I decided I was just going to really concentrate on the on the writing. And I, I gave up doing, you know, I'd produced a load of artists and worked with all kinds of people. And I decided, look, I'm just going to really get focused on one thing. And that was the writing. So out of that came uh, an offer to, to write something, which didn't sound all that attractive. It was to write music for sort of background for Expo. And I went back to them and I said, look, how about that I write this suite that links, because Expo was going to be in Spain, that links Ireland to Spain. And I found a story in my father's library. I found this story that was about Red Hugh O'Donnell going to Spain after the Battle of Kinsale to look for reinforcements, to have another go, because after the defeat in Kinsale. And uh, and that became the inspiration for the Seville Suite. And the Seville Suite had so much in it that ultimately appeared in Riverdance. So, for instance, uh, the Spanish Connection uh, was appeared in Riverdance in Maria Páquez. The Irish and the and the, uh, the the orchestral, the whole thing that I was doing, like others, like Sean Davy was doing it as well, working Irish instruments into an orchestral setting, and um, that you know because before any of the work that had been done was really just the orchestra playing Irish music, but this was actually bringing in in the in the following on from Maria though really, uh, bringing the Irish putting the Irish orchestral. Uh, music up on the stage and that's what what uh, Seville Suite was about and I found Maria Páquez in Spain she ultimately ended up in Riverdance and then the following year I was asked to do The Spirit of Mayo and in that I had Anuna and the drummers and all of the elements that ultimately made up Riverdance so it was a to, to many people Riverdance was like one night where they remember in Eurovision but to me it was like a, a, a journey you know Every time I see on Reading in the Years the clip of that night, yeah. the Interval Act, the thing that really strikes me is at the very end of it, there is this extraordinary moment of silence That's right. before the place explodes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the sort of what? moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, although there had been, you know, as the, as the piece went on, it was seven minutes and as the piece went on, there were one or two places where the audience were kind of applauding in the middle of it. But when it was all over and we got to that big, when the line, the line which was created by the great choreographer Mavis Ascot, and when that line happened and we had that moment and the line came up and presented itself to the audience, 
then there was that moment of, you know, kind of, as the audience, it took a few seconds for them to actually, to get it, and then suddenly they were on their feet. And, and that night, you know, when it got the reaction it got, were you thinking, oh, okay, this is going to go somewhere, or were you thinking, well, this is amazing, it worked, and, and we move on, or what? Well, I always believed that there was, you know, when as we worked towards uh, the Eurovision, I always believed that there was something good happening. This was, and I wanted a recording of it because I thought that the record, if I had a record, it w- it at least would have um, some archival purpose, if nothing else. And I I really wanted to, to record it, so I went around the record industry looking for backing because I couldn't afford it myself. And I went around the record industry looking for money to make the record. I couldn't get anybody. Everybody said, hang on, was this seven minutes? Ah, no, come here. Uh, but, you know, how are we going to get a record seven minutes long on the radio? No, forget it. So I couldn't get money from the record industry. But I did remember that years ago I, I got some money from a insurance company to do a, a musical project in the National Concert Hall. And they said to me, if you ever have anything, come back. So I had a cassette of my own home demo of Riverdance and I found myself in the extraordinary situation of sending this cassette around to an insurance company. <laughs> I mean, hello? I mean, perhaps the most conservative and careful type of business around the place. And they came back to me the next day and said, you know, we had to listen to that. That's very interesting. Um, you know, how much are you looking for? And I told them. And they said, okay, can we put our name on the on the single? And I said, sure. They said, okay, fine, we'll make the record. And if that record hadn't been made, nobody would have anything to play the next day after the, the enormous um, response on the night. And suddenly we had a record. We were ready. It was in the shops. It was in the radio stations. And they played it. And it went straight to number one. Bill, I'm going to ask you to stay with me. Uh, we'll take another short break. Uh, the Road to Riverdance is the memoir. Bill Whelan is with me in the studio. He will be signing the book in his hometown, O'Mahony's O'Connell Street, 2 o'clock uh, tomorrow. And we'll take another very short break. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95. So really enjoying our chat this morning with Bill Whelan. His memoir is The Road to River Dance. And uh, nice comment in here. Um, I met Bill uh, one night. I hadn't a clue who he was. I asked him about his tablet and he explained to me he found it very useful for work. I asked him what he did for a crust and he said he wrote a bit of music. <laughs> I asked him, did he ever write anything famous? He said, well, you, you might have heard of a show called River Dance. <laughs> he was such a gent and a wonderful, unassuming ambassador for Limerick. Well done, Bill. Oh, that's Isn't nice. that nice? Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned then that because of what had happened, a bit of serendipity, a bit of, mm. of thought about it, mm. there it was available to perform. Yeah. And I remember, don't ask how, but I blagged my way into the opening night of Riverdance in Radio City Music Hall oh, in New York. Yeah. I was there the right. night it opened. And I remember how extraordinary that was. But I also remember the enormous pride among Irish people in New York and Irish Americans mm. about this display of Irishness in such a positive way. Yeah, I think that was really important. Uh, not not just, well, certainly in America, but also, you know, if you think about the time uh, when it really took off, and you know, the mid-90s, late 90s was when it really sort of uh, got its legs. And in in England, you know, things were a little shaky, peace process, you know, all of that. And Wogan, 
you know, he was, you know, he was such a positive energy in the UK. And it was difficult sometimes being Irish in the UK when when things were very, very turbulent in terms of the uh, the political uh, situation. So, yeah, it was it happened at a good time. Uh, and then, of course, in America, you know, well, the stars at the, of the original Riverdance were two Americans, you know, the two principal dancers, uh, Flatley and Butler. And there was a certain kind of, you know, one, our our crowd. This is this is our lot. <laughs> oh yeah. But it was to bring, you know, there was a lot about Riverdance that had to do with bringing things together. For instance, I think that music, you know, I I began my whole connection with the trad music came through, you know, folk folk music, and then onwards into Planksty and Donald and Andy Irvin, really important for me because again, it was one of those areas with no map. So how do you get in and how do and I was really I really loved what I was hearing with trad music and I wanted to do something with the orchestra and trad music. So when I was eventually in Planksty, we did time dance and time dance happened in 1981 in the middle of Eurovision, exactly the same spot. And uh, and that led ultimately to to river dance. But that whole coming together of so that that if you like that musical movement was going on for some time going back to Oreda dance had remained somewhat in that sort of side channel of competition dance and what river dance did if you like was it turned that sort of way of expressing Irish dance into a piece of theatre in other words the dancers turned around and they faced out to the audience and they performed for an audience as opposed to doing you know, just competition pieces which were judged. One other thought, coming back to modern Limerick where you're sitting today, mm. um, I, I assume you're very pleased, for example, to see the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance oh, at the University of Limerick. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I was good friends with Michal, uh, God rest him, and he was a great, uh, like he had a fantastic, powerful energy, which which Cork benefited from for quite a while. Uh, and then which ultimately ended up in Limerick and um, it is just such a great thing to have that in the university and and like I remember the time uh, going back to the 60s when we marched to Dublin for Limerick University and we a train was booked and students from Limerick went to Dublin and we marched on Marlborough Street down to the Department of Education and then up to the Doyle uh, with our placards and we demanded a university for Limerick now, you know, there were a lot of other things going on and back channels, but ultimately we ended up with the university here. And it's a real source of pride for me, actually. And it's a great place to finish because they are marking 50 years this Ex- year. Exactly. The University of Limerick. Exactly. Well, listen, Bill, it's such a pleasure to have you in. Um, congratulations on everything that you have done over your distinguished career with more, I'm sure, to come. The memoir is Bill Whelan, The Road to River Dance, and uh, you will have the opportunity to go along, say hi to Bill, maybe get the book signed. He's going to do that for me. And uh, that's at O'Mahony's tomorrow at O'Connell Street at 2 o'clock. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Great to see you. Uh, you too. Take care. Bye. Your views, your news, your Limerick Today with Joe Nash on Live 95.